God has written into the fabric of creation an ever-advancing cyclical experience of life, four seasons. Each passing season is new, and yet each brings familiarity of traditions and patterns of our lives previously lived. Ancient Israel marked these seasons of life by religious festivals or feasts, their way of reading their faith into the cyclical seasons of life. And as with changing seasons of nature and the pattern of ancient Israel, the church also marks passage of time by seasons or rhythms of life. And today is the first Sunday in Lent. The very word Lent itself comes from an old English word which means to lengthen. It anticipated the renewal of creation after the desolation of winter in the blossoming of spring that was yet to come. And so in anticipation of the true and greater promise of the renewal of all things found in Easter, Christians have followed a pattern as old as Scripture itself, a pattern of setting aside a period of time, 40 days, a good biblical number, 40 days of fasting and reflection and prayer. Because Lent is meant to bring us face-to-face with the human condition, with our condition. You heard a bit of that reflected in the confession that we prayed this morning. This morning we're going to look and seek to gain a biblical perspective on the nature and condition of humankind, and more particularly what God's remedy is for our condition. That's our framework. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your surpassing glory our supreme concern. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. We are in Romans 5 this morning, and in that reading we are confronted with two, sta- with two statements that uh, can seem so extreme, right? That when we read them, when we consider them, and when we consider what is really being said, we can question their reliability, When Paul describes the human condition without Christ, when he tells us that we are weak and ungodly, when he says that we are sinners and dead in our sin, when he tells us that we are rightly deserving God's wrath, we have to wonder, can it really be this bad? But then he goes on and he writes of the privilege that is ours in Christ. He writes that through no doing of our own, we have in Christ and by Christ been saved. We have been justified. We have been reconciled to God. And we can find ourselves wondering, can it really be this good? And what we need to lay hold of this morning is that unless we really see how completely and hopeless our nature is without Christ, we will never appreciate what he has done. We'll never be able to grasp just how hope-filled the Christian life is. So our context today is that Paul is writing a letter to very normal people, a group of people who are living in Rome. They were everyday ordinary citizens. Some were more religious than others. Some were undoubtedly kinder and more generous than others. Some were poor. Some were wealthy. Some were viewed as their neighbor, by their neighbors as extremely good people. Some weren't. The point is that before they came to Christ, they were not viewed as any needier or any better or any worse than anyone else. They were just normal people. But Paul will explain to them that while they might seem to be normal people, they did have an unresolvable problem. Without Christ, Paul would write to them, all of them, every one of them, were cut off from the one living and true God. 
Romans chapter 5 as we work our way through it. Look at how Paul describes their pre-Christian state. Three increasingly strong words he uses. First, weak, verse 6. Paul writes, while we were still weak, the NIV will say powerless. They didn't mean physically weak, he was speaking spiritually. And what he meant was that in our natural condition, we are powerless and unable to help ourselves, unable even to understand the things of God. And this is the spiritual death of which we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve, the Romans were, we are, apart from Christ, spiritually dead, living lives in biblical language in trespass and sin. They and we had deviated from the right path. They and we had fallen short of the standard. They and we have missed the mark. They were both rebels and failures without even realizing it. And the consequence is that the life of God was not in them because real life is only found in fellowship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. See, apart from living in a relationship with God, we merely exist. We have breath, we are animated, but we exist because we don't live the life that God created us to live, the kind of life that is only found in relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. We are weak, we are powerless. We are, as Paul will elsewhere write, dead. Dead to the great wonder of God. Dead to the glory and to the majesty of Christ Jesus. Dead to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We are completely unable to remedy our circumstance. And we hear this and we may wonder, can it really be that bad? But it gets worse. Paul says in verse 6, from weak to ungodly. Although they did not know it and perhaps thought themselves quite nice and good people, they were actually ungodly. Claiming, Paul says, to be wise, they actually were fools. They had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of their own imagination, exchanging truth of God for a lie. <clears throat> they thought themselves free, but actually they'd been living in bondage. Bondage to three controlling interests in their lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil, things we looked at three, four weeks ago. And then as if it's not enough, Paul says thirdly that apart from Christ, they were enemies of God and subject to wrath. Whose wrath? Well, uncomfortably, God's wrath. Verse 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. Right? One of the most difficult, in scripture, difficult verses in Scripture to swallow is that we are natural, by nature, natural enemies of God, that we are, in and of ourselves, deserving of judgment. And that flies in the face of every self-help book you're going to read and every repetitive statement you make in the mirror to start your day. But here's what I want you to see as you hear these things. Because we, if we don't understand the order, we can despair. When Paul writes things like this, he always writes them in the context of what Christ has done. In Scripture, the bad news about our condition is always given in the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? We need to be clear, Paul is truly telling the Romans and he's telling us that we naturally do things that God dislikes. Right? Like what? Well, biblically, by nature, we reject the knowledge of God. By nature, we refuse the gospel. 
By nature, we are filled with desires that unless they are transformed, we'll ultimately deserve and receive God's judgment. And so the point of all this, well, the point that Scripture makes clear to us is that our fundamental problem is not primarily a matter of what we do, but what we are. Right? Our fundamental problem is not principally what we do. Our fundamental problem is what we are. And so biblically, apart from new birth, right, Jesus' words, you must be born again, apart from that new birth, I'm my problem. I said this a few weeks ago. I am my primary problem, not my deeds, not my circumstances, not the people in my life, not the Congress, not the White House, not the Supreme Court. My nature is my fundamental problem. In Anglicanism, we have formularies, doctrinal statements that give shape and context to our life. One of those formularies is called the 39 Articles of Religion. And Article 12 is after this same thought when it says this, speaking of original sin. Original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his old natures inclined to evil. I love that statement. Whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Well, here's what the writers of the articles were after. I do not have a good nature. Naturally, I do not have a good nature, which was transformed into a bad nature through things I've done or left undone. My problem is much more profound than that. David will write in Psalm 51, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, right? This is who I am. By nature, I am selfish. By nature, I am self-centered. By nature, I am demanding. And I'm quite adept at making you feel that you are the problem. When Paul describes our nature before new birth as subject to wrath, he's telling us that we are fundamentally rebellious, that we are fundamentally selfish, that we are callous toward the glory of God and his holy, his holy anger, right, is both a right and a righteous response to us. And I want to settle this now in case you're thinking, as some do, that Paul was just a mean and cranky guy. Paul's not being mean. He's not being cranky. He's not picking on the poor Romans. He's not picking on you. Paul is not a pessimist. He learned what he wrote from his Lord. But where did Jesus say things like this? Because we often have a very faulty view of Jesus, who came to, in some minds, affirm us and tell us how good we are. But you heard it in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus' own words, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and yet people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works shall be exposed. One commentary commenting on these verses says, we are not neutral when the light of Christ approaches us. We resist it. We are not neutral when spiritual darkness envelops us. We embrace it. Ever since the transgression of our first parents, all human beings and every human being is infected with a predisposition to selfishness and to sin and to self-preservation and a desire to live a life on our terms, right? In more modern language, to assert our rights. 
And it is this infection, it is this inner predisposition that explains why the gossiper continues to gossip, even though they feel remorse later. They gossip because they delight in the gossip. It's why the unfaithful spouse continues to be unfaithful even when they later feel remorse. It's the thrill of the sin. It's why the shoplifter who has absolutely no need to shoplift continues to shoplift because it's the thrill of getting away with something. And this disposition, this corruption and corrupted condition of our heart, this is what provokes God's anger, as Paul will write his wrath. But I want you to hear something very, very clearly, and I want you to listen very closely. Because, again, if you don't understand that the Bible always presents bad news in the context of good news, our condition in light of what Christ has done, you will miss this also. God's anger toward our sin is actually an expression of God's great love for us. How does that work? Right? Say it again. God's anger toward our sin is actually an expression of his great love for us. How in the world can that be? Well, here's what I mean. God cannot bear the disfiguring and corrupting effect of sin upon his creation. He cannot look at sin and injustice and not get angry. Why? Because God is not a remote and distant being. He is not aloof. He is a father. The Bible tells us that he's a father who cares. A third century theologian said it well. He who does not get angry does not care. Again and again, we read in Scripture that God is a loving father. And we read that his children have an infection, that we are sick with a disease called sin, and that there is no part of us, not our mind, not our heart, not our emotions, not our will, that is free from this infection. Death is truly at work in us, and unless it is treated, it will kill us eternally. This is the condition of humankind. This is the condition of every person you will ever meet. It is your condition as you live a life apart from God through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, to use biblical language, it is a curse. And every human being is under it. And as John Stott said, the radical disease requires a radical remedy. And the radical remedy is Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul now turns in his writing to the Romans. Having described our hopeless and our helpless condition apart from God, Paul now goes on to describe the amazing thing that God has done. And he writes in verse 8, Excuse me, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to, by, to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This will not be the only time Paul writes like this. If you're familiar with Paul, you'll, you'll hear this echoed through most of his letters. This is the amazing grace of which John Newton wrote. This is the amazing grace of which we sing. For those who have believed in Christ Jesus, God has saved you from a fatal disease. And the medicine that has healed you, that purifies you, that saves you, the divine antibiotic that attacks and subdues and eventually destroys the sickness of sin in your life, it is the blood of Christ. Given, God has given to you the very life of Christ. He has made you alive in Christ, made you alive with Christ. 
Paul goes on in Romans 5 and tells us that while we were once in solidarity with Adam, we are now one with Christ. Paul will tell you that when you believe in Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, his divine life comes and dwells within you and joins you to Christ. You are in him. He is in you. Another Pauline phrase that appears over and over. Christ in me, I in Christ. And so Paul will write in verse 15. The rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ will do. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand, setting everything right kind of love that the one man, Jesus Christ, provides. Why has God done this? Because, Paul says, of God's great love for you. Because God is rich in mercy. Because he's kind. Because he's gracious. Because it is his nature. And the consequence? Right? In Christ, we have peace with God. In Christ, we have access by faith to this grace. In Christ, we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that ultimately our sufferings, as Paul will write earlier in this chapter, produce hope. In Christ, you have God's love poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. Friends, may I suggest that we are standing at the very pinnacle of the gospel. That John chapter 3 and Romans chapters 5 through 8 are amongst the most powerful and precious chapters in all of Scripture. May I suggest that their words to be read and thought upon and prayed upon, maybe over these next 40 days. What do they mean? These chapters tell us of God's action grounded in his love on our behalf. We read that God not only saves us, he sanctifies us. We read of rescue and new life and grace and hope and purpose and surpassing joy. All these things, free gifts, simply be received. And the way that we receive them is by faith in God's son. And, even, and the Bible tells us that even this faith is a gift of God. We can't manufacture it. We don't earn it. It's something God gives to us. See, this is what Paul was after way, way back in the very opening verses of this letter to Romans when he wrote to the Christians in Rome telling them that they were loved by God and called to be saints. Everything we are and everything we might become, we are and we will be because of God's work in our lives. But there is a catch. It's to be received. It can't be produced. When I was on the ventilator, I had no ability to help myself. I contributed absolutely nothing to my recovery. I was completely dependent on what was being done for me, and my only hope for health in what was, it was found in what was being given to me. And this is our condition apart from Christ. We are powerless. But our weakness is met by God's power, for God has done it all. 
And we contribute nothing at all to the work of our salvation. And our only hope for health is found in what and who has been given to us. This is, this is the very heart of the Christian faith. While we were sinners, while we were separated from God, while we were living as enemies of his son, God demonstrated his love for us by giving himself to us fully. So what do we do with this? <clears throat> How do we apply it? And I'm going to suggest there are only three ways to respond to this. One response is indifferent and lackadaisical. One response is impersonal and theoretical. The final response is urgent and personal. The first way says, I don't know if this is true or not, but I don't care. Second way says, how can this be? It's fairy tale and make-believe and nonsense. But the final way says, the Lord brought me here today. And by his spirit, he has spoken to me in these texts today. And by his word and his spirit, God's grace and mercy and love seem particularly beautiful to me today and close to me today. And I need them today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your amazing grace that brought me here this morning. It is your grace that has awakened me and softened me and opened me. And so I pray, create and make in me a new heart. Give to me perfect remission of my sins and the gift of faith to believe that Christ Jesus has done this for me. For I am yours and you are mine. Amen.